Welcome to This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into an opportunity. I'm Vincent Herringer. Every week I talk to entrepreneurs, investors and experts about what they're doing to solve the climate crisis and get New Zealand down to zero emissions by 2050 or sooner. This Climate Business is brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand. Last week, Climate Change Minister James Shaw was deluged by criticism from people who normally make up his biggest fan base. Generation Zero said it was a disgrace. Forrest and Bird described it as a clear lack of policy, and Newsroom's Mark Dalder called it a disappointment. So what's all this then? Well, the criticism was a response to the just-announced emissions reduction plan discussion document, which is neither a plan nor a draft of a plan, but a discussion document about what could go into the plan. Well, with me to discuss all of this is Dr. David Hall, Climate Policy Specialist at AUT, and Dr. Victoria Hatton, Climate Change and Sustainability Director at PwC. Welcome both of you to the show. Thanks, Vincent. Wonderful to be back. Kia ora. Kia ora. Well, let's uh, put this in context, Victoria. What is this document and uh, what is it responding to? Uh, Thanks, Vincent. So um, the document, which is the um, Emissions Reduction Plan Discussion Document, very long name, has come about because under the Zero Carbon Act legislation, the Minister of Climate Change must set emissions budgets and ensure that they are met um, by 2050. Um, Emissions budgets are set a limit on the total emissions that are allowed for New Zealand over a five-year period out to 2050, and they should start in 2022. Um, But the Climate Change Commission, when it delivered its advice to government back in in May, end of May, 31st of May, provided the minister with a set of emissions budgets for the first three five-year periods. So uh, let's say 15 years worth of emissions reductions from 2022 to 37. that the Climate Change Commission had spent a long time robustly modelling and testing to ensure that they were ambitious but achievable for New Zealand. The Commission has also provided some recommendations on how the government may achieve the emissions reductions it set out. Um, mm. So just to remind listeners, the domestic net zero target requires at least net zero emissions of all greenhouse gases other than biogenic methane by 2050 and then a 10% reduction in biogenic methane by 2030, below 2017 levels. Mm-hmm. And, then a, and then a further reduction of biogenic methane from between 24 and 47% by 2050. So getting back to, sorry, I was just, I was just going to explain. So the yes, ministers- Yes, ob- carry on. So the minister's obligations- I guess, um, from the Climate Change Commissions and the the Zero Carbon Act um, is that he has to set emissions budgets and the minister must consider advice that's been received by the Climate Change Commission and ensure that there's adequate consultation on those emissions budgets. So that's why the document has come about. So this is the way the minister is going to consult on the proposed emissions budgets. Um, but I guess with all public public consultations, they're costly and time consuming, and um, you know. Well, it's been delayed by five months. So this response to the Climate Commission report, which came out in May, has now effectively been kicked down the road by five months. Why is that? 
The official the official reason um, is due to COVID or COVID related issues um, and the possible inequities that might be experienced by people in lockdown who might feel and question the, con- the, the consultation process. Um, which is really, it's really important that the consultation process is seen as fair and equitable. Um, and that means that everybody can, can um, I guess, can get to a, a public meeting if there are these um, going to be held around the country. So that, that's super important. Um, and to be fair, you know, the number of, um, number of strategies and policies that have been out, outlined in the proposal, the discussion document, are tremendous. And so, you know, the fact that it's been delayed five months by COVID, um, but that gives time for businesses and public to actually really think about what it is that they want to respond to, um, given the, the length of the document and what, um, what they might be proposing. Mm. So we have a a plan, but it's really a discussion about a plan. Uh, what is the expected date of the draft plan, which then I assume has to go through another series of consultations and submissions? Yes, yeah, so that's actually really unclear. So um, it's due the emissions reduction plan consultation process will stop at the end of May um, 2022, which um, will then go through the um, legislation process that it was due to go through at the moment currently, um, mm. which means that the minister will present it to cabinet and cabinet will discuss it and hopefully agree to the recommendations that come out. But there's um, there'll be a substantial process that will take place with officials to get it to the point after the consultation process ends to get it through um, through parliament. So it might be another another year before we see an emissions reduction plan coming to fruition. Right. Okay. <laughs> Uh, why is everything in climate change so complicated, David? Um, maybe um, you could simplify it for us. What What is in this discussion document that we need to know? So there's a set of strategic objectives. There's things like establishing a transition pathway, a commitment to working with our partners in Te Tiriti o Waitangi, and um, some commitments around ensuring that it's a just, equitable, fair transition um, and in, 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 in setting that forth it, it establishes a bunch of principles and also some um, objectives around funding and financing, research, innovation, behaviour change, it sort of identifies all of these different systems, levers and tools that, that could be um, utilised in order to drive emissions reductions mm-hmm. and, and the real meat of the document is is the policy recommendations around the particular sectors so so those other strategic things sort of sit above that policy right. and then it gets into the key sectors and and proposes policies and that's really what ultimately you want to look for in a plan because you want concrete action you want genuine commitments which um, are going to make measurable impacts on greenhouse gas emissions yeah the document is very heavy on transport uh, which is great because we know how important transport is as a contributor to emissions and particularly in Auckland right where it is the largest um, greenhouse gas emitter and so excellent to have a plan Um, we're going to get into what those things are uh, but 
first of all, why? Why is it so heavy on transport? And I guess the glaring emission is agriculture, which is our largest emission. Well, someone who in, in my day job spends a lot of time marking essays, this just reeks of somebody's done their homework and other people haven't. I mean, it is just <laughs> un incredibly uneven. It's clear that the Ministry of Transport has done its homework and delivered what looks like a cohesive pathway, um, which is populated by concrete actions and policies which make sense and sort of wider considerations around co-benefits and so on. Um, but the other sectors just lapse back into um, either redescribing what's already happening or, again, plans to have plans. Um, one of the recommendations in um, energy and industry is setting outcomes and an approach to developing a plan for managing the phase out of fossil gas <laughs> in the energy system. So we have a plan that is proposing to develop a plan for a plan to phase out fossil gas. I feel like I've so, entered some sort of, um, you know, kind of 1984-ish world. But um, Victoria, we're being very t tough on these poor uh, government departments. Is that fair? So um, I, I suspect that officials are really busy at the moment covering a whole heap of other issues like COVID, for instance. So it's we are potentially being a little unfair on what's coming out of government at the moment. But I guess taking it into a different point from David, from a transport perspective, the rest of the world has made significant progress on transport and reducing transport emissions. So there's a lot of um, there's a lot that we can take from everywhere else in the world um, and use. So we can lift up strategies and policies, which is why I think there are so many available for us to utilize in New Zealand. But also, tra I mean, transport emissions are growing. They've grown 100 percent since 1990, which is mm. just it's a significant growth. So mm. we do really have to um, sort of emphasize our decarbonization strategy in transport. Um, if you look at energy, energy, we're, we're, we're already, you know, the best, what we would like to say is the best of the best from a renewable energy perspective. The last little bit is really costly. Um, and so there's not much more that we can do without significant investment. Agriculture, you, you know, the, the plan for the plan doesn't really mention agriculture. And I think in, in all fairness, we are highly anticipating the outcomes of Hawaka Ekanoa, which is the industry partnership program. Um, now that is still very much in discussion. And I think we have to see how that plays out because if it does play out really well, it will be world leading. And I think it will set a plan for how we can reduce our agricultural emissions. So we we can't, it, it's almost like we, we can't, um, sort of preempt what that outcome would be. So that's that's why it's so we can we can ag. But um, you know, I'm with I'm with both you and David. It's it's a plan for a plan that might become a plan. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I completely agree. I think there was some really unfair criticism, especially around agriculture, because you know Hiwaka Ekanoa is underway and um, but 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 there's just an unevenness about the whole thing you know it needs to be a multi-sectoral approach and it, it it's got this lumpiness it's got this unevenness 
Um, and it just feels like it, it's, it's just characteristic of the whole climate policy problem that we've had so much time and here we are still talking about plans and strategies while we should really be putting things into action urgently. Into action. Yeah. There are some very concrete actions recommended. Um, let's pick on transport. What are some of the highlights? I've got here a congestion charge uh, for Auckland by 2025. That's not that far away. Uh, what else is in that list of uh, objectives for transport? So there's um for, so let me talk so um I think one of the one of the good things that's in there is the suggestion to reduce um, public transport costs um you know especially for those who are um, on lower incomes um and making the opportunity for equitable transport um, transition um because one of the things that we find I guess from a transport perspective is that people who are using their cars are those who um, essentially can't afford to use public transport and um, live a little bit further away mm. from where they're working, perhaps working two or three jobs and they need to sort of transition between. So I think that's um, a really um, good um, policy option to be putting in there. Um, mm. You know, you kind of look through the list and it's um, the, the, the language that they use are investigating or introducing or producing rather than sort of the co the concrete actions you'd like to you'd like to see um, well, one of them is the um, extending or um, yeah extending I suppose the ban on high emissions vehicles or increasing the incentives for people to bring in low emissions vehicles would that be an extension of what already exists or would that be a whole new policy set again? I assume that um, may connect to the proposed vehicle scrappage scheme, um, which is another way of starting to shift what kinds of vehicles we happen to be hold holding and especially to ensure the um, early obsolescence of vehicles, which have very high emissions that have been chugging away for far too long um, and, and getting them off the road sooner so that the we can increase the supply of um, low emissions vehicles at the at the other end. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and, and it's an extension of the um, the tailpipe emissions bill that's just been passed as well, which means that importing vehicles have to pass a certain um, emissions um, level for their tailpipe. Mm. Was there anything in the document that talked about infrastructure, uh, uh, changing the way infrastructure investment is made to account for the externalities so that we're not embedding emissions into the concrete that we're laying in the next decade? So for, for me, this is um, sort of one of the big things that's missing. Um, and, and I guess going back to something that David just said earlier as well in the fact that the plan is quite piecemeal so it takes sectors as individual um, opportunities within the plan there's no real holistic opportunity to to think about what what a 2050 New Zealand might look like hmm. and therefore how we can shift or change the system to make it better um, and to make the outcomes better so that you don't make one change, for instance, in the transport system that could have a knock-on effect um, and actually increase emissions in another sector or make it harder to decrease emissions in another sector. 
Mm. And there isn't so that underlying conversation around um, infrastructure and investment um, doesn't happen in this document. It's so interesting yeah. because it did happen in the Climate Commission's report, right? It, it, it talked a lot about in future proofing uh, our infrastructure to build in uh, a low emissions um, kind of economy, I suppose, David. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the Climate Change Commission in some way had a greater mandate to take some of that high-level strategy and to try to frame things in terms of meeting those future emissions budgets, but they clearly did not have a mandate to go into the detailed policy proposals, the Climate Change Commission advice if anything, um, compared to the draft advice, sort of pulled back on some of the specificity of the um, mm -hmm. policies that were being floated in the draft advice. And it was very much focused on the pathway. And um, they clearly, clearly um, were leaving that space for the policy detail to come from the government agencies. Um, and that's why to, to see some of the vagueness and, and some of the gaps in the emissions reduction plan is quite troubling because that was where that detail ideally would have come and we would have been able to have that opportunity to consult on it in this um, critical period. And, and I, you know, I think to, to your point, you know, I don't think to be critical is to be unfair on policy analysts who, as, as Victoria said, are working under extreme pressure and made all the more complicated by the pandemic, but I think um, the, the, the problem is probably even larger than any individual or group of policy analysts. It's a, it is a systems problem within government itself, I think, um, and it speaks to some of the challenges that um, the government agencies have had with wrestling with these big systemic problems that don't fall neatly into sectors and um, into neat compartments. I think, you know, there's long been a, a call for more joined up government and whole of government mm. approaches, but that's often signaled without any, um, y you know, clear institutional change to, to make sure that actually happens. And this document, you know, reeks of, of that kind of problem of compartmentalization. It sounds like, you know, a lot of requests were made to different parts of government and they all came back and were essentially stitched together in whatever form they came in, um, some more complete than others. And then it hasn't had that holistic lens put over it. And I mean, I mean, one interesting point of comparison actually is with the net zero strategy build back greener that came from the UK government um, just recently. Um, and, in, you know, it's, it's perhaps a little bit of an unfair comparison because Whitehall has resources um, of far greater magnitude than um, the New Zealand government does. Um, but n nevertheless, you can see there that all of the policy recommendations, which are very, you know, robust, rigorous, win or lose policy actions um, all through all the different sectors, you know, they're also sitting within a larger narrative, um, not necessarily a, a narrative that everyone's going to agree with. It, it very much has, you know, <coughs> Prime Minister Johnson's um, 
you know, gung-ho, let, let's get green and let's get rich um, <laughs> kind of framing to it, um, which not everyone's going to agree with. But nevertheless, you know, it tells a clear story. And I think that's a, that, that's, it makes for an interesting contrast. Hmm. That's, a, that's a good point. Well made. But the UK, of course, have 10 years on us because they had a climate change commission over a decade ago and presumably have been wrestling with some of these mega issues for a longer time than we have. Yeah, but we've had the Royal Society for New Zealand reports several years ago. We've had the Productivity Commission low emissions reports, and we've been able to draw off the um, Climate Change Committee reports in the UK as well. I mean, there's there's been no no shortage of um, new ideas and 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 a sense of the general direction, at least, that we ought to be travelling in. So I don't think that that should let anyone off the hook. Mm-hmm. A, a criticism of the report is a very specific commitment to uh, starting uh, reducing our first emissions budget at, by two million tons, if, if I've understood it right, and, and kicking that into the second period. What's that about, Victoria? Why have we been able to uh, effectively kick that can down the road into the second budget period? Yeah, it's an interesting um, decision, I think, that's come from the minister to do that. And it's based on um, forestry, a piece of research that's been done by the forestry sector to say that um, they've got some planting in um, coming into phase, which might interfere with the soil carbon and CO2 emissions that are coming from the land that will be made up over time in the next budget. So it's almost giving a little bit of a get out of jail free card in the first budget that will will get handed back in the second budget. So in the next sort of 10 years, we will be back to where we should have been. This uh, These extra emissions, is that the result of effectively clearing land and then reforesting land? Is there is, is that where that, those extra emissions come from? Yeah, so from what I understand from land use change, Hmm. David, the um, we're relying a lot, aren't we, on those forests coming on stream to absorb um, the, the excess emissions, which is how we get to our net number. Um, are you confident that we are planting enough? And uh, dare I even ask, are we planting the right kind of tree? I mean, how much is too much? I mean, it... it, it it comes down to this um, issue as to how equivalent you want to treat removals from forestry as distinct from emissions reductions from genuine decarbonisation. And if you are reluctant to think of them as equivalent or as fungible, as um, economists would say, um, then, then you know you're kind of reluctant to see forestry do the heavy lifting because all that means is that you know from an economy-wide perspective you are um, you're missing the opportunity to undertake the actual decarbonization Hmm. of industry transport and so on which is producing the emissions that go into the atmosphere that those forests are potentially going to remove Hmm. and from a from a risk perspective um you know, there's some real problems here because the the chance of a um, uh, 
of a tonne of carbon in a forest being returned to the atmosphere is much higher than the chance of a tonne of carbon being withdrawn from the atmosphere. I mean, the, the, you know, the carbon stays up there for hundreds, if not thousands of years, and forests do bring that carbon down, but the forests are always at risk of reversal through fire or forest degradation or mm. harvesting mm. and so on. So from a risk perspective, um, these, em these emissions reductions have quite a different profile. And so that's why you, you want to see as much actual emissions reductions through decarbonisation of the economy um, as possible. And so mm. it, it is, you know, forests definitely play a role in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and they play much more of a role than they do in other countries, just because, you know, we have a relatively large land mass um, and you know, lack of forests in certain parts of the country has, has a whole lot of other sorts of environmental issues that we want to solve. Um, you know, we've talked about this in the past, Vincent, you know, trees on erosion prone hillsides is a good and if we can combine that with carbon sequestration at the same time then um you know we're we're getting co-benefits we're we're multi-solving in the um as the lingo goes so so there's definitely lots of afforestation to be done but from that you know wider strategy i mean ultimately what we're trying to do with the low emissions transition is get to net zero um emissions and we need to stop using fossil fuels and prevent our reliance on fossil fuels and anything which delays or impedes that genuine decarbonisation is is tr troublesome. Mm. That's such yeah, a good point, Victoria, isn't it? You're, a, you're an industry and you, you must see the pressure that industry is under to uh, innovate, to find alternatives are you finding that that pressure becomes relieved when they can kind of get a get out of jail card with a with a carbon credit? Does that stop the innovation and and reduce the need for change? So um, it's an in, it's an definitely an interesting time to be in industry because um, one of the things that I'm finding is that. Um, there is a, a misunderstanding around what getting to net zero means versus carbon neutral. And um, industry seem to think that um, they're one of the same thing. And therefore, hmm. you can continue along business as usual trajectories. You might want to reduce a few emissions because it's good It's good for the image or good for business. Um, but essentially, they're using um, forestry as their carbon credit and um, thinking that that's the way forward. Hmm. So we, you know, spend a lot of time actually reiterating the importance, as David said, of decarbonising, and that's taking the emissions out of the atmosphere. And um, and that's what net zero means. Net zero means reducing emissions at source um, and only offsetting, only using carbon or forestry um, offsets as a last resort when those uh, emissions are really hard to abate. Hmm. Um, and that would reduce... I guess that would reduce our overall need for forestry over that period of time. You know, mm. we might need a lot of forestry now, but in the next 20 or 30 years, our reliance on forestry um, as an option um, for decarbonisation of offsetting would reduce. Mm. Um, you know, as a as a someone that works in a venture capital industry, and I've always I've always followed innovation and entrepreneurship and loved that sector. 
I find the language of these reports, including the Climate Commission report, always focusing so much on the, uh, I suppose, mitigating and um, not embracing the excitement that could come with innovation and discovery. Um, am I being overly sensitive about that, David? You know, should these documents be more optimistic uh, about the solutions that have yet to be discovered? Yeah, they, they, they absolutely should. It's, it's difficult to put into a policy document because for policy, you want to be linking yourself to determinate outcomes. Whereas the, the tr difficult thing with innovation is that you don't really know what the outcome is going to be. That's part of the nature of it. You're, you're putting money into possible solutions, knowing that many of them aren't going to work out. Um, you know, that's, that's kind of a venture capital mentality is that you put money into, you know, a wide suite of projects, mm. knowing mm. that most of them are going to fail, but it's that one that, 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 that works and that becomes a, um, you know, the next gadget of tomorrow that, um, is, is going to make multi-billions and is going to offset all of the costs from the from the things that which never took off and and that's the sort of thing which it's it's difficult for for governments to commit to because there is a mentality that governments can't pick winners it shouldn't be shouldn't be um the you know trying to pick winners in 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 industry and in innovation and that um you know they should just be having a very passive approach um to to innovation and so but precisely because it has those risks of not delivering um measurable outcomes but of, of course that this is under challenge as well you know there's um economists such as mariana Matsukato um based at ucl um who argues that the government should be taking a much more proactive approach to innovation and taking more risks under the umbrella of missions such as the low emissions transition and that, you know, government shouldn't be picking winners per se, but it should be picking min missions such as um, decarbonisation of industry and then mm. funneling innovation funding into those areas in order to... Um, supply entrepreneurs with the startup cash and the growth cash that they need to um, create solutions in this space. Yeah. Who, who was it that said, uh, we we go to the moon not because we can, but because we choose to? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I think, so, what's this, our moonshot? Come on. Yeah, um, yeah. And and so there, so there are parts of the ecosystem which are emerging here. MB's been doing some work in this space and um, there's things like the – NZ Green Investment Finance and um, and Giddy Funds and 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 other things which are which are looking to encourage this sort of innovation. Mm. Victoria, very soon, David. Uh, not David. That's David. Uh, um, James Shaw is going to be fronting at COP twenty six. Will he be embarrassed going to that event with this report under his arm? Um, I, ca I can't speak for whether James would be um, embarrassed at um, going to COP with this report, but um, my experience of COPs, I've been to several of them, is that it, it's a tough, it's a tough arena, actually. And I think the build up to this COP26 in particular, it's been two years in the making and the UK has 
um, UK has been particularly dogmatic around ambition. And, you know, as, as David said, they've, um, you know, they, they are delivering some amazing um, policy documents which demonstrate their, their ambition. And they've gone around the world trying to get countries to sign up to greater levels of ambition. Um, New Zealand just hasn't managed to get there in in its ambition story overall. So it's not just about taking one discussion document. It's about an, an NDC that was resubmitted with, with no no increasing ambition. Mm. It's about, um, you know, we've, we've now got a climate finance um, dollar figure that we can go with. You know, we're quadrupling our um, climate finance investment, which is fantastic. So it's about picking the winners. Um, but, you know, the, in terms of our overall ambition, it's it's not a great story. And I'm quite glad, actually, that I'm not going to be part of the delegation this year. Um, <laughs> because holding your head up high in that environment is, is pretty tough. Um, you know, we I, th- I thought, you know, hopelessly that um, having COP looming would have made us more ambitious and and want to get results faster so that we had something to take to COP to discuss. Um, And that's not the case. David, are we in danger of uh, not living up to Jacinda's uh, nuclear-free moment? Um, <laughs> these these are always tricky um, lines to live up to. Um, absolutely, I mean, I think you know it speaks to the metaphor right, that that you know um, to be nuclear free is to is to cut yourself off from a source of energy and um, ammunition which New Zealand didn't have any dependence on. Whereas to cut yourself off from fossil fuels is to cut yourself off from something which infuses the economy, which our whole transport systems rely on, which we rely on to give, um, you know, to be the backup to our hydro dams when they're not performing at, at, at top. So they're, they're, they're different problems and, and there was never going to be a, a clean solution. Um I mean, I, I think my takeaway really for the politicians would be immense frustration because I think, you know, all political leaders go into these, um, you know, take these opportunities with a lot of will to get things done and find that it is actually incredibly hard to get things done even when you're in power. And mm. it speaks to, you know, a wider problem around um, politics and policy and you know this is perhaps me speaking with my political scientist head on you know where, where I have an interest in um, climate change but but it, you know as insofar as it's a part of politics more generally and it just seems that you know our institutions really aren't well designed for managing some of these big looming complex problems um you know you you would think with the response to covid at least the early part of the response you know we was sort of best in class and the government won a lot of plaudits for that mm. but it was a very different problem it was on a scale you know the 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 the, the time scale is really weeks um between 
you know, your actions and that playing out and, um, in the manifestation of the virus and COVID-19, whereas the feedback effects for climate change are years and, and decades away. Um, so there's, there's a great paper by Sonia Maisie and Jeremy Richardson, and they say that they've been working for decades on policy styles and they talk about New Zealand being, you know, brilliant at a, at a reactive policy style that it can turn on a dime and, and respond to these quick events like the, the pandemic. But for climate change, you really need anticipatory governance that anticipates the future, that brings in foresight, um, forecasts out to what the future will be and, and designs institutions around that, even though there's no immediate incentive to do so because you're trying to, you're trying to change, you're trying to shift the economy years and decades ahead. And that's just very difficult to do. And um, yeah, I mean, I mean, you, you you can almost detect that plea for help actually in the in the emissions reduction consultation document, where they're casting out to other sectors to help to build the solutions. And I think, you know, part of the answer may well be to have a more decentralised, devolved approach to this, where, um, you know, in a much more structured way. Uh, local communities and businesses and iwi and hapu are uh, empowered to design solutions that hmm. fit them fit their own problems because a lot of a lot of the solutions actually are really local and really specific to a particular business or, or community group and so on and um, but you know how they how they could build in that feedback um, if if indeed these groups even have the energy and time to to give that feedback in the next six weeks, um, you know, having already done that at the start of the year for the climate change commission mm -hmm. consultation. I mean, it's, but, but, but you could see a potential opportunity there, but it would require a, a more structured way of doing it. And it would also require central government to, to let go of a bit of its decision-making power and potentially to back some of that um, decentralization with, um, funding and capability building to support mm. it. Well, I for one uh, lack patience. Uh, I, I think the world being on fire is a good enough incentive to act, but uh, you know I'm not in government, so there you go. Um, Dr. Victoria Hatton and David, Dr. David Hall, so uh, grateful for your time. I know you're both super busy, so um, please uh, enjoy the rest of your lockdown, house arrest. And um, we will speak again soon. Cheers, Vincent. Kia ora, Vincent. Thanks for listening to This Climate Business. I hope you enjoyed the programme. There are more episodes as well as notes and blogs on our website, thisclimatebusiness.com. I'm Vincent Herringer. And if you know someone who deserves to be interviewed on our show, email me, vincent at thisclimatebusiness.com or find me on Twitter, vherringer. That's two E's, one R. Meanwhile, I'll be back same time next week. And no hurrah.